Well, good morning, Redeemer. If you have a Bible, please open it with me to 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at verses 15, 13 through 16, 14. And uh, this will be actually our last Samuel sermon for a bit. Next week, going into Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about a theology of festivity uh, so that we get our priorities straight as we go into the season of festivity. <laughs> and then for Advent, we're actually going to be looking at the intertestimonial period um, and, and ask some big questions. Why is the Old Testament written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek? How, how did that happen? <laughs> um, so that whole season, we'll be looking back uh, and, and at the expectations uh, of the coming Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled them, much to everyone's surprise. <laughs> but this morning, we're going to be looking at actually David's uh, dismal departure from the, the moment has come. He goes now into exile. So before we begin, let us, uh, let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the second book of Samuel. I thank you for the ministry of the prophets who compiled it. I thank you for your son, David, and the shame that he endured that is an example for us. I, I, I know, Lord God, uh, that there are dark days. There are uh, deep valleys in which we descend. There is shame and guilt for our sin. And I pray, God, that as we read about David's shame and guilt, that we would reflect upon our own, that we would not stand in judgment of him, but that we would stand beside him, and that we would let the word of God judge our hearts and minds, that you would reveal our sin to us, that we would face it and not turn from it, that you would heal us, that you would restore us, that you would give us, in fact, eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that loves you and your word above all things. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, and amen. Now, this section, I don't, you know, it's very instructive. I don't think they could have crammed more allusions, callbacks, foreshadowing, types, anti-types into these verses if they tried. But what it demonstrates is just how full the Word of God really is. This is one of those sections that, that, that is easier to understand. It's easier to grab hold of the types and anti-types. It's easier to grab hold of the, the callbacks and the foreshadowing. And so what it does is it teaches us how to read other portions of Scripture. This is one of the easier parts that explains to us how to understand the harder parts. Okay, that, that is what the Westminster Confession says, the, the easy parts help us understand the hard parts. Now, this one is, in fact, full of illusions and callbacks and types and foreshadowing. It also provides us a photo negative of the triumphal entry. The path that David takes out of Israel is exactly the path that Christ takes into Israel, except everything is jumbled up. Right? All, all, the, all the stuff in the story is, sh- is shaken as if you were in a jar and spilled out. It's topsy-turvy world, but this is, this is David's world since his lying with Bathsheba. He's turned the world upside down. Everything is the opposite of what it should be. He is the opposite of Jesus, and so his story is the opposite of Jesus. Where Jesus comes in triumph and glory, David leaves in despair and shame. Now, what, it, what, what this story also helps us with is the grand narrative. Every time Israel thinks the son of promise from Genesis 3.15 has appeared, that son who would crush the head of Satan, that son who will restore them to Eden, that son who will undo the curse, every time they think that son has come, 
the son proves that he is, in fact, not that son. Okay? And, and David here proves it stunningly, that he is no Christ. He is no Messiah. And yet, and yet, what, right? Well, those of us who know the story know the hope that's here, because there is, amongst them, fleeing into the wilderness, one who will carry on the line, carry on the story to get us to the point where that son, who will, in fact, crush the head of Satan, will emerge. Right? There is a stump, as we're going to see, but from that stump, what's going to come? But this whole series is about that. How did it end up as a stump? It was this glorious and magnificent pillar of righteousness and glory and goodness. And how does that become a stump? David has become a dragon in his own garden. And though forgiven, the consequences of his sin has brought about more sin. Who will, in fact, deliver us from this body of death? You read a story like this and you're like, if it's not going to be David, who? If not now, when? If not him, who? Now, what this passage demonstrates is that even though the Lord is, in fact, orchestrating human history, the whole sweeping thing, he does so with watchfulness over the details. Again, this is one of the easier parts that helps us understand the more difficult parts, like the difficult part of your own life. God is, in fact, in control. We all know where he is right now. We all know what he's doing, in a sense, right now. But when we look at, right, we look at our own lives, our own circumstances, and we think, what, what gives? What gives? But he is there. He is orchestrating it. And he's not just orchestrating it in grand sweeping movements. He's orchestrating it in the very details. And don't you need that, right? That cup of coffee you're going to drink on Tuesday, I'm sorry, or herbal green tea, whatever, herbal tea, green tea, whatever you drink, when you're sitting down on Tuesday morning and you put that hot mug to your lips, that detail itself is part of the grand narrative that the Lord Jesus Christ is telling. Right? What you do and do not say to your spouse this week is part of the story. This story shows us that every single minute detail is in the hands of one who cares about us in every conceivable way. We think either he can't hold the whole thing together or that he doesn't care about the details. And what a story like this shows us is that both of those things are a lie. He can, in fact, hold the whole thing in his hands. And not just the whole thing as a whole, but the, the, each individual detail. Now, with that introduction, let us turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I will begin re- reading in verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. They halted at the last house. Immediately, the king recognizes the gravity of the situation, a crisis unlike anything he's dealt with before. When, before, when these kinds of things would arise, he had Jonathan in, in, the, right, in the inner sanctum to give him information. He was on the lamb. He was not the king. He was not a, a man of might and power. 
This is the leader of the country fleeing the capital city. Now, I don't know if you read a lot of history, but generally speaking, when that occurs, it's bad. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> when you abandon the capital, it is not good. And you're trying to make it to the airport right before the military coup gets you. It's not a good sign. Now, thanks to Absalom's popular support, as well as his success in taking most of his administration hostage, David is now bereft of counselors. As we're going to see, he's fleeing the city with a bunch of foreigners. Why? Because Absalom knows what he's about, and he got all the major men of Jerusalem, the Jews, all to go out with him to participate in this coup. So David is here, and he's surrounded by what? He's got to leave concubines in charge of his house. He's got to take his family with him, and he flees, as we're going to see, with a bunch of foreigners. David's servants, who had been in Jerusalem when the news of the coup reached him, remained steadfast in their support of him. It occasionally, in the kingdom of heaven, appears as if the Lord Jesus is fleeing the capital city. It sometimes looks looks like there is a coup upon us. And those of us who are steadfast, those of us who know you said, those of us who know covenant loyalty, remain with the king even when it looks bad. And we are ourselves amidst bad times. And you can see who's fleeing and who's not. You can see who's staying steadfast to the Lord Jesus and who isn't. This is one of the most important details in the story that should comfort us, that should guide us, that should help us understand those who remain faithful to the Lord remain when it looks like all is lost. Now, this part is a little hard because David wants to leave someone in charge of his house. And so he leaves 10 women. And, and sometimes in our, you know, in, our, in our attempt to show manliness and talk about federal headship and all these things, We jump up and down on David here. But actually what he does is very wise. Because if you leave ladies in charge of the house, generally speaking, when when men of war come to the house, what they're not going to do is hurt the women. If you leave the ladies in charge, right, this whole massive city with all these walls, this fortress of a city that was very difficult for David to take, he he purposely takes all the military men out of it so that the people who remain will hopefully remain safe. Because it takes a certain kind of somebody to show up at a place like Jerusalem and start slaughtering, men, or, um, slaughtering women and children, hurting the women and children. So David here is not doing something, he's, he's not failing in his leadership. He's actually attempting to keep the peace. If they come here and there's nothing but ladies, maybe, maybe that will calm him down and perhaps he will not slaughter everyone like I just said. Right? We're running away because we think he's going to kill everyone. They're non-threatening members of his household. But what he has forgotten is what the Lord Jesus said to him. Or, I'm sorry, what the Lord Yahweh has said to him in 2 Samuel 12, 11. This is what the prophet told David. He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Now, he was told this. And so I think his motivation for what he's doing is noble, but this is the David who has forgot, who's forgotten the Lord, who's in trouble because he has reviled the word of God, and he's not thinking, I think, properly about what he's doing. 
Because if you recall this prophecy, I know it's been six years or so, you think, wait a minute, you know the last people I should leave in this city is anyone who's married to me. Because that's what God said would happen. So, so as we see here, David is trying to do the right thing, but, but he's going to and he's not going to. He's, he's not the same David. He's not the same David. The repetition here of the word went out has obvious literal relevance to the story, but also it resonates with the story of the Exodus. In Exodus 12, 41, it says, At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the, the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Exodus thirteen eight, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. They, they are going out of Israel because there is a new pharaoh in town, and his name is Absalom. And just like God delivered Israel in the Exodus from Egypt, God is delivering David and Israel in an Exodus now, and Absalom plays the role of Pharaoh. So this is, again, another big type, another big callback that is here right in the middle of the story. They're using the same language. Also, they use the, the, the same word that we translate as Passover several times. In verses 18 and 23, it talks about being passed by or passed over. And what they're saying is what? They're calling back to Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, there is a son who is going to die. Right? We've already seen this. David and Bathsheba's child dies. Now here, right? Absalom is the oldest son that he has because he killed the other one. So now the second born is the first born. And what's going to come of him? Okay? And, and all of this is just a callback. And this is how the Lord God writes the Bible. This is what he does throughout. He's always referencing his own work. Okay? I remember one time in college I got into a lot of trouble because I quoted me in a paper I was writing. That is not something in academia you're allowed to do, right? Laura can testify. Okay? No matter how good what you're writing is, don't quote yourself. It doesn't work. <laughs> but the way the Bible works, right, is he, the Lord God is constantly referring to his own work. Hey, guys, remember that time before? Yes, remember it. Because that's what I'm doing now. I'm the same. And in your life, if you look at it, what you will see is that God is constantly stealing from his own work and retelling the same stories over and over and over again, in which you are not the main character and you are not the good guys. Okay? But he is showing up and saves you and saves you and saves you and saves you. Why? Because that's what he does. That's what he does. That's who he is. Now, David led his group out of Jerusalem to a place some distance away, at which point he stopped to organize the group more effectively. Because when you're fleeing, also if you read history, you can tell there is a way to flee that is going to destroy you. And there is a way to flee, right? There's a way to effectively retreat that actually turns a, a, a loss into a win. Okay, Napoleon was good at this. I, that man didn't lose even when he was retreating. And David here is not just going to run fleeing from the city. He's going to get organized. And that's what we read in verses 18 to 23. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back. 
and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But the... But Hittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall go, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Hittai, Go then, pass on. So Hittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and the little ones who were with them. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook of Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness." Now, a review, that's what you call this. It's a military review. You know when the leader stands there on a platform saluting and the army walks by? That's called a review. So this review is because he's trying to organize his defenses. You don't necessarily want the women and children going out ahead of you, unless, of course, you're Israel in the book of Genesis, but that's another story. Okay? He, he wants to see who he's got with him. He wants to assess his situation. He wants to count how many troops he has, how many spears did we bring, how many shields are there, who has a sword and who doesn't. And so he's having this military review. Now, as in the days of his flight from Saul, David again finds himself welcome amongst Gentiles. All the tribes mentioned there are non-Israelite tribes. They'd been with him in his years in the wilderness and would rather wander with him here again than abandon him. They would rather go into exile with him than leave him. And they're not Israelites. Though David's own son conspires against him to win the hearts of Israel, these Gentiles remain loyal to David and are therefore part of the true Israel. Similarly, Jesus was opposed by his own, but accepted by Gentiles, demonstrating that not all Israel is of Israel. Absalom's persecution of And the Gentiles' loyalty to David demonstrates Psalm 2.12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All, Jew and Gentile alike. And what David is showing here is that the final kingdom, when Christ comes into this world, he will be rejected by his own. They will seek his life, just like Absalom is seeking David's life. But however, here, there, and everywhere he goes, the Gentiles are like, yes, you are the Messiah. The, The nation, the empire that the Lord Jesus is building, like David, is not one strictly of ethnic Jews. This is important. When we're talking about nationalism, which is kind of a hot thing at the moment. <laughs> I know I love <laughs> the Christian or the CRC pastors on the list serve. You know, we're talking, we're all hot and bothered by this Christian nationalism. And our friend, the Polish minister who's been here several times was like, guys, guys, let me just give you a piece of advice. Don't use that word. <laughs> okay. Because when Europeans hear nationalists, they think brown shirts. Okay. They think Nazis. So come up with something else. And somebody else suggested Christian imperialism, which I'm all for. Because why? Because the nations are gods. Right? That's why. And, and he's giving them to his son. And what I love here in this moment with, with David is if you pass over too quickly, you see a picture of what Jesus is going to be. David is rejected by his son and accepted by the Gentiles. Jesus is rejected by his own and accepted by the Gentiles. Okay? And bringing all the nations to himself, all the nations, not a particular nation, no matter how exceptional it thinks it is, is the point. 
Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Yes, this is a victory lap. We're taking a victory lap. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Let's take a victory lap, okay? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We like doing things in triple because we're Trinitarian. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christian imperialism sounds just fine to me. Now, Hittite the Gittite from Gath, a Philistine, is an exile who chooses to throw in his lot with David. He's already in exile because he's not amongst the Philistines. So now he's going to double exile. And this is what happens when you become a Christian, right? What, what did Jesus say? You have to cast off your family. Anything that is separating you from him, get rid of it. And you have this man who's already in exile, who's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to double down on my exile now because I went into exile into this country and that king's going to exile, so I'll go, I'll go into exile with him. Why? Because he is the one I ought to follow. And this is an example, right? How far are you willing to go? How deep into exile are you willing to go? Right? I could get a crayon and I could make this state a little bluer. I could. We could go even further into exile. And let me just give you a piece of, let me not be prophetic for a moment, but let me just tell you how I see the stitches on the fastball. It is, in fact, going to get deeper into exile. Right? How far are we willing to go? And I want you to ask this now before the shooting starts. I want you to ask yourself this now before the real persecution comes, because I love everybody, but we haven't exactly yet dealt with real persecution. How far are you willing to, are you going to be like this Philistine? And you know what, you know what's funny? When I, when somebody disappoints me or I'm trying to make a joke, I call them Philistines. Say, oh, you Philistine. Because to me, that's like an oath. I'm insulting you because you're like the Philistines of the Old Testament. And here is a Philistine who's willing to go into double exile to stay with the king. I'm going to stop making that joke now. Just in honor of my friend here, the Gittite. Now, it's important to understand that David compels no one to go with him. In fact, it's the opposite. He says, no, 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 count the cost. You're new here. You just came here. You have a whole family. He doesn't compel anyone to follow him. He says, you ought to go back. Now, why? And Jesus talked this way, didn't he? He said, hey, count the cost. Count the cost. Because we think, oh, you're calling us to a life of ease and a life of pleasure and a life where there's no problems. But, <laughs> but no. He, he wants you to stop and say, listen, you know, all I'm asking from each of you individually is that you die to yourself every day and take up your cross every day and follow me wherever I go. Now, one exile, fine. A second exile, though? A second? Now, 
Hittite the Gittite says something to David here, which I, I think is on, he purposely does this because he wants to win the heart of the king. His response to David sounds like David's grandmother, Ruth. Okay? And, and, if, and we all know the story of Ruth because we read it in the Bible. David knew the stories about his grandma because why? We tell stories about grandmas, especially if you have a grandma like Ruth. I actually have a grandma named Ruth, and we still tell stories about her. I've heard stories. I've heard stories about the remarkable, miraculous, beautiful Christian things that she did in her life. And so I guarantee you that this Gittite knows exactly what he's saying when he says this, and it's, and it's like medicine to David. It's a comforting word that he gives him. Because Ruth, in chapter 1, verse 16, said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And what he says to David is, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And I could just imagine David standing there, fleeing, trying to hold back the tears. Now, our mission in this world is to not only imitate Hittai, but to call the nations so that we all of us together say, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Now, here in North America, when's the last time it was... You know, we had to say something like this, for life or for death. <laughs> That's not how we think about it, right? Well, I might be there at church on Sunday. We'll see what I have going on. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll get to the hospitality, and I'll get to the holiness, and I'll get to the piety and all that stuff. But, you know, I got other things going on. There's this Netflix show that I want to watch. And, I mean, it's a little iffy, right? Are we dedicated to the Lord God like this? Where you go, I go, for life or for death? <laughs> No matter what. Now, there is a moment in Jesus' ministry where after he sets his face like Flint to, to go to Jerusalem, it says that the, or the disciples at, at that point, disciples, are, are afraid. They're afraid of him. Because he is so fixated on what he's going to do. And what I find here is, is, is there's something similar going on. People are like, you know what, I, look, at, look at how fierce he is. Standing there at his age, everything he's endured, counting troops. They want to go where he goes. They want to do what he does for life or for death. They are wholly committed to him. And part of it is his resolve as a penitent to, to submit himself to whatever it is the Lord is going to do. That is the kind of leadership that gains followers. Now, I understand that if I word things just correctly, often enough on Twitter and I get the blue check, I will have a large following. There's other ways to get followings, right? There's a certain kind of church service we could put on, a performance. We could get all kinds of followers. But the kind of followers that Jesus has, the kind of followers David has in this moment, is the kind of followers that we ought to have. Where we are saying, listen, I don't care what's going to happen to me. What I care about is obedience. What I care about is obeying the Lord God. And, and, and what that does to people, even if they're already in exile, is say, listen, where you go, I go. What happens to you happens to me in life or death. I'm with you. 
And, and this is the kind of thing that we need. This is what we need in our homes. This is the kind of security that your wife needs. This is the kind of security that your children need. This is the kind of culture in a church we have where, where we say, you know what, whatever happens, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever he goes, I go too. Whatever befalls him, befalls me too. Now, I just want to point out one more thing here because it's important. It's important detail. It mentions that all the little ones go with the people. They didn't leave the little ones behind. And, and you've got to imagine for a moment, as a parent, wouldn't it be safer to leave them in Jerusalem? They think it's safer to go into the wilderness with the king than to leave them in their homes, to leave them in what, what appears to be safety and comfort. Now, I understand that he said, hey, listen, if we remain here, we're all going to die. <laughs> but I mean, you know, again, it takes a certain something to slaughter children. And so these parents would, would rather go with David into the wilderness with their children than stay in safety and comfort of Jerusalem. Right? They're marching with the army. They have chosen to go along, and they've brought their children with them. And I think that that also is a testimony to us of what we're called to do now. Right? There's no safe place for us to hide our children in while we're out here right, living Christian life, going after the culture wars, trying to um, baptize the nations, trying to call in the nations. There's not a safe place for your children in that other than with you. Right? With you on the road following the king. Now, after they had crossed the brook Kidron, which runs through the valley of Kidron between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, Zadok, the priest, came with the ark with Abiathar and the other Levites. And that's what we read in verses 24 to 31. It says, And Abiathar came, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he said, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming up to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Ushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Now, a major portion of David's support has always been the religious community. Why? Because he's always supported them. He's always taken care of them. When Saul, right, when Saul was trying to hurt David, he went out and he slaughtered priests and their families. And David has always been with them and protected them and, sh and guarded them because he loves the Lord God and so he loves the ministers of God. He consistently provided support to them. And now Zadok wants to show that kind of loyalty, the kind of loyalty that the Gentiles are showing. He says, no, listen, 
David has gone away. He has his army. The only one he has left is Gentiles. So what we're going to do with the priests of God is take the ark and go with him. Because they remember what? They remember that, right? Remember what Eli attempted to do. If we take the ark with us, we can't lose. That's what David needs. We associate the ark with David, not the ark with God. It's part of the problem why they've run into trouble and people have died touching it, because they associate it with the wrong things. But they're associating it here with David. But David sends it back. He sends it back. The ark had been set up in its place, and that was the place where God had had chosen to dwell. It's his throne. David will go into exile, but he will not allow God to go into exile. God's throne remains in Jerusalem, even if he has to run. The ark was taken out of the land once before, back in, the, in, in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6. But this time the ark remains while David, the anointed king, goes into exile because things have actually changed in the structure of Israel. The ark used to represent God. Now the anointed of the Lord represents God. So David is the seat, in a sense, of the living God. And he, as Israel, is going into exile. The place of worship should remain. The ark should remain. Things have transferred now from it to me, and I am going to go into exile. Please, take it back. Oh, and by the way, we're going to set up a network of spies, which I'm going to come back to in a moment, because if you're going to win a war, this is, if you take a page out of Michael Collins or George Washington's book, this is actually how you do it. But he, he doesn't want to treat the, the ark like a talisman, he, and and the, these priests, by the way, if you do the math, they're actually not young guys. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 fellas, listen, come on. Carry the gold box back to Jerusalem. Let the, let the place of worship remain. I, who now represent the Lord, will go into exile. Now, Abiathar is offering sacrifices. This is, it's been a while since David has been associated with any kind of worship. And what we see here is, is that things are starting to turn. He goes up to the Mount of Olives. There's like a roadside chapel there. They stop and they worship the Lord there. And David is praying. And these are the things that we have not seen David do in like four chapters. Okay, It was way back when the baby was going to die that the last time we saw him worshiping and praying and calling out to God. And so what we see is that as he descends, his eyes turn higher and higher towards heaven. And, And that is an important part of what's going on for him here. Now, it keeps mentioning the word head. Okay? The compilers of Samuel dwelt on Absalom's head previously, his beautiful head of hair, and now they've come to the head of the Mount of Olives in verse 30. They meet Ushai, who has dust on his head, verse 32. And this, in this, in this, I'm sorry, this is a story about the head of Jerusalem being forced to flee before a prince whose distinguishing characteristic is the head. This is just one of those moments where you're like, I, could they have crammed more typology into this? I don't think so. Every little detail here matters. Every little detail is part of the grander story. There is a transfer of authority, a transfer of headship going on here, and, and they signify it by re- continually referring to the head. Now, what happens when they get up there is lamentation. And this is similar to what Jesus did in Luke thirteen thirty-four to 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is what they say when he comes in his triumphal entry. So what I want us to understand is that though David is going to go back to Jerusalem, things aren't really reversed until Jesus comes. 
Because at this point, Jerusalem becomes a place that actually persecutes true Christians. Okay? It, it, it has like an up and down sort of relationship with people in Israel. It, 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 they persecute prophets. They persecute kings. And, and David has gone away. And it's not until Jesus comes back and looks upon it and says, I'm going to go down there now and I'm going to win this city back and its people back to the Lord, to the living God. Now we hear of Ahithophel. Now that's Bathsheba's grandfather. Now we understand why he would join the plot. He has a bone to pick. He wants vengeance. And, but he is a, a great counselor. A great counselor. And David doesn't curse him. What does David do? This is a, right. We, we, we've, we've been doing imprecatory psalms today. We were singing them. Imprecatory psalms where we talk about the fact that God smashes the teeth of his enemies. But I, I think it's interesting that David here does not pray against his person. He simply prays that his counsel will come to nothing. Okay, so this old man that comes and sees him, he has ash on his head. He's very old. And David says, listen, you're too old to go with us, and I want you to go back. And what I want you to do is join this network of spies. And the network of spies is actually how he ends up winning. But this is how Michael Collins defeated England in the uh, Anglo-Irish War of 1920. You get information. The more information you have, the more you're going the better you're going to do in the field of battle. And that's what David does here. David is not the same person that he was. He's not. But you see these flashes here of military brilliance. As he's fleeing, as he's counting troops, as he's concerned about old friends, as he's concerned about where they're going to go, as he sees the little children with them, he has an idea, and this idea is a brilliant idea, which actually leads to their victory. And, And where does he have the idea? He has the idea... Uh, where he's ascended, they've worshipped, he's prayed, and now he has a great idea. Because where do good ideas come from? Okay? If, if I sat in my armchair this next week, and I sat there and I just said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to come up with a good idea for a sermon. Because I'm a genius. How long would I sit there before I came up with a good idea? Until the Lord Jesus returned. Or I died. Okay? That's not where good ideas come from. Good ideas come from with interacting with the Word of God. Okay, when, when we're worshiping properly, when we're praying properly, when we're interacting with the church properly, when we have worship and all of those things in our life in order, this leads to wisdom, right? This is what we said. When we honor and thank God, as it says in Romans 1, what that leads to is wisdom. When you don't honor God, when you don't thank him, that leads to a darkened mind. David has had a darkened mind because he reviled the word of God. He's ascended the Mount of Olives. He's, in a sense, ascending back to the Lord. He's returning to the Lord. He's praying to the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. And then he has this one brilliant idea that saves them. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's a strategy. Now, who amongst you, with me, would like a strategy to end the guilt and shame and horror that is the United States. Anybody? Strategy? Anybody want a strategy? Okay. Now, David, <laughs> David doesn't just call in the nuclear bombs and turn the whole thing into glass. That's not how he, he, he does it, right? He's willing to go into exile. He's willing to descend in shame. He's willing to descend because he realizes that this has happened, right? I will do 
what I got to do, and God can do what he's going to do because he's God and I'm not. He, he's, he's realizing who he is and what, he's up to, what he ought to be up to. Everything is being put back in its proper order in his mind. And, and this whole process is actually what is going to end up saving him. And this is our strategy. Do you want the country to turn and go up? Well, then what must the country do? It first must go down. <laughs> if Jesus wants to sit at the right hand of the Father, what did he have to do first? He had to descend. What we see here is that David is leaving Jerusalem, descending, but he doesn't get very far, and then he ascends to the peak of the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a hill from which you can, right, it's actually higher than Jerusalem, and you can see from there not only Jerusalem but the whole land. And, oh, lo and behold, he worships God there and then has an idea. And I cannot express this enough. How many times are we going to try to come up with an idea of how to put things right, and it does not include first descending and then ascending to the Lord. We could try it again. I mean, the midterms went really well. They were, I mean, stellar, right? I mean, that was our great idea. Let's win the midterms. Now, I've, I'm now 42 years old, and I remember this strategy, and you know what happens? We fall for it every time. And I'm not saying that we should get out of politics. That's not at all what I'm saying. Our friend Christian Burns up at the church plant attempted to run, made a good showing, trying to get county commissioner. Amen. But I I never thought, okay, well, this is going to be the thing that saves Skagit County. Right? I love Christian Burns, but him winning county commissioner would not save Skagit County. You know what's going to save Skagit County? Descent into humiliation and guilt and shame and acknowledging that... The Lord God can do whatever he wants. That this is come, the, the sin that we're experiencing now, the, the, the brokenness that we're experiencing now, the things that are happening to us now are not going to bring judgment. They are the judgment. And it's not till we ascend the Mount of Olives to return to your God and my God and Jesus' God. That is when we come up with a good idea. And until we're willing to go down and then ascend on the other side to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have no good ideas. We won't, the CRAC won't, Protestants won't, the Christians in North America will not. There is a verse in Hosea, chapter 6, verse 1, that I want to read to you. And this has been in the background of everything that we've talked about since David got caught out by Nathan. And this is what it says. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Who did this to us? Right? We can blame all kinds of people. But if you look right in your own closet, there will be a pile of skeletons. If you look in your wife's closet, your husband's closet, your children's closet, your parents' closet, what you will find in everyone's closet is a giant pile of skeletons. Because that's what sin does. It it brings death. And you think to yourself, why are we going through all of these painful things, like losing the midterms? (laughs) If we think that's what persecution is, right? If we think more Democrats is persecution... 
we ought to read some history books. We have not yet begun to put things right because I believe firmly that all of us, all of us, as a church in North America, have not yet ascended the Mount of Olives. Right? We haven't even let, yet left Jerusalem. So many of us still think, well, we're Christians. We're in charge. What is wrong? Like, morality is ours, right? We talk about this in apologetics. Like, everything is ours. Everything is ours. Everything is ours. That was 40 years ago, people. Right? The moral majority, if it ever existed, died sometime in the late 80s, okay, when they were all doing coke. If you want a moral majority, if you want to be on the side of God, what you need to do is first descend and cry out to him while you're down there and then ascend to him in worship, in prayer. And then, then he will give you a good idea or he won't. Okay? But there's only one way to get one, and that is going to him. A return to the wilderness is a humiliation that brings David back. Okay, and he doesn't come back perfectly. He doesn't come back and they're like, oh, now this is the son we were promised in Genesis. Right? Because you're not the sons, right? This is, you're not the sons promised in Genesis. You're like David. You, you may have had heightened moments in your life where you were soaring and your, your heart was near to God and everything was going well, but you have fallen. Your nation has fallen. The church in North America has fallen. And there's only one way back, and it's through the wilderness. It's through humiliation. It's through crying out to God. If you want to ascend to the Mount of Olives, you first have to get off the throne of your own heart and descend out of Jerusalem. Okay, you've got to leave the capital. Christ will not come in the triumphal entry until you first take the walk of shame that David takes. And I cannot express this enough. Now, I want to, I'm going to challenge you because this story is full of callbacks. Right? And you hear a sermon like this, and he's like, did he just say we've all fallen? Well, first off, yes, I did say that, because it's true. But think back in your life. Think back. And I'd like you to do two things this week. I would like you to tell your spouse a story in which you fell, and then you were restored. And then I would like you to sit around your dinner table, and I'd like you to look at your children in the face and say, listen, here is a time in which I fell and failed. And then here is how God restored me. And then I want you to get this out. I want you to talk about the Exodus. I want you to talk about the fact that Genesis starts with the fall and the book ends with what? One of the sons of Israel sitting on the throne. And I want you to talk about these stories because that's what Moses told us to do in Deuteronomy. It's to remember. And we're going towards Thanksgiving now. And if we want to restore this country and, and stop the darkened minds that are ruling it, what we need to do is thank God and honor God. And you do that by talking not about how great you are, but about how great he is. You have got to leave the throne of your own heart in your little Jerusalem and descend so that you can ascend the Mount of Olives and the Lord Jesus Christ can take his proper place. And then and only then, well, and I'm going I'm to go with David. I'm going to close with this. He might give you a great idea. But that's not really the point. You're not going to have one without doing this. But you might get up to the Mount of Olives and not have a great idea. But you know what? You're at least living faithfully. And that is more important. That's what David is saying. I'd rather, right? I would rather the Lord's way than my way. I would rather his will than my will. It's the prayer that never fails. Your will be done. Your will be done. Your will be done. And so, ladies and gentlemen, 
Tell your children's stories. Tell your spouse's stories. Remember the stories of the living God. And if you want to restore anything, if you want things in their proper place, you first have to leave the throne of your own heart. Amen. Father, I thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. I thank you, Lord, uh, for the cutting edge of the word of God and its comfort. I know, Lord, that you cut us, that you may heal us. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be pricked in our conscience, that the secret sins of our hearts would be revealed, that we would not live in condemnation, Lord, but that we would honestly confess and honestly uh, turn to the word of God and, and read there the forgiveness that has been bestowed upon us graciously, that we would descend from the thrones of our own hearts, that you, Lord, may ascend and rule and reign over us in everything we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.